Please turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44. We'll start with verse 24. Been in a series on Isaiah for several months. Suppose one of the beautiful babies that I baptized this morning had had cerebral palsy. How would the parent feel to have their child born that way? How would you feel had it been your child? How would you cope with that? How do you cope with it when some real painful thing comes into your life? Maybe you've been swimming and a wave hit you unexpectedly and knocked you upside down and took away your breath and and uh, you just felt like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to drown here if I don't get some air. Sometimes that's what happens to us. <clears throat> I believe this passage of Scripture gives us some insight on how to handle it when these painful things come into our lives. Uh, notice first the contrast between God's dealings with the diviners and his own messengers. The, he fails, excuse me, he foils the words of the diviners. In verse 24 and 25 here, it says, This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets, and makes fools of diviners. Uh, he's speaking of the false prophets who would prophesy things, uh, and uh, they would not happen. You have uh, fortune tellers in our day. You have the uh, mediums in our day, or channelers. You have... Uh, the diviners, the horoscopes, the astrologers, and so on. Um, and you pick up here uh, God's attitude toward those who seek to discern the future apart from his revelation as contained in the Bible. Uh, God has set barriers, and he said we're not to seek to do that. Uh, he condemns fortune-telling or mediums. Uh, now, that's not to say that these diviners don't on occasion predict the future accurately. We saw that several weeks ago when we talked about a couple of 20th century prophets uh, who have predicted things that have come to pass. Edgar Cayce uh, was one such. <clears throat> but we saw how they missed a lot. When they do accurately predict such, uh, often it's due to the fact that they do have a supernatural source, the demonic. And the demonic does have some insight into the future, but the demonic, the demons, they miss a lot too. And God makes fools of them. You read in the New Testament about uh, Paul casting a demon out of a fortune teller. And uh, then he was thrown in prisons because her masters could no longer make money from her. The reason they could no longer make money from her was she could no longer tell the future. Prior to that point, she'd been able to tell the future sometimes. She'd miss a lot. But 
There is the supernatural aspect there. But God, it says, uh, he foils the signs of false prophets. They do signs and wonders. And makes fools of diviners. But notice how he treats his servants, uh, his messengers. Verse 26, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers. Uh, God runs the world by plan. And he reveals portions of that plan through his messengers, through the writers of Scripture, for instance. Now, a case in point is brought before us, Cyrus's dealings with the, with the Jewish people. In uh, verse 26, the second part of it, Who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited of the towns of Judah, they shall be built, and of their ruins I will restore them. Now, you notice this prediction of the restoration of Jerusalem and Judah. And the situation of Jerusalem in the prophecy, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, and of the towns of Judah, they shall be built, and of their ruins I will restore them. In the prophecy, Judah's been destroyed. Jerusalem's been overthrown and is in ruins. But at the time that Isaiah wrote this, Jerusalem and Judah were flourishing. So he's picturing the city, and he has a vision of it, in ruins, and and then predicts that it shall be restored. Now, uh, earlier in chapter 39, King Hezekiah had had envoys come from Babylon to inquire about the miracle done in the land when the sun went back on the dial 10 degrees. And uh, he's so proud, and he shows them all of his treasures, and then Isaiah comes to him. And Isaiah said, who were those men? He said, oh, they were, they were ambassadors from the king of Babylon. He wanted to congratulate me on my recovery. He said, what did you show them? Well, I showed them everything, everything, all my treasures. He said, because of your pride, because you didn't honor the Lord, you honored yourself. All those treasures are going to be carried away to Babylon. Babylon's going to conquer this nation. It won't happen in your lifetime. It will happen. Well, now in the vision, it has happened. And uh, yet the prediction is that Jerusalem will be restored. Isaiah died around 700 B.C. Babylon conquered Jerusalem and Judah, conquered them in 606 B.C., the first group, and carried away some captives. Daniel, Ezekiel were in that group. And the puppet king was set up, and he rebelled, and they conquered them again and took some more captives. And then they rebelled again, and in 586, Nebuchadnezzar comes and wipes out the city, burns the temple, breaks down the walls, and carries them away captive. And uh, they're there until 536 B.C. That's 70 years after the first group goes. Uh, And then they are released in 536. So 150 years ahead of time, uh, you've got the prediction of their returning and rebuilding. 
being given by Isaiah here. Now, your critics object to this, of course. They can't stand this, because if you let this stand like it is, then obviously God guided Isaiah. And there is a true God who directed the writers of the Bible, and this word is true, and all that it says is true. You let this stand. Jesus Christ is who he claims to be. He did what he claimed and died for our sins. He rose from the dead. He ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father. He will return. Salvation is found only in him. Men live forever in heaven or hell. You only go to heaven by faith in Jesus Christ who paid for your sin, trusting him as your approach to God, not trusting that you haven't been too bad or you're going to make up for the bad. Salvation is a sheer gift based on his death. You must believe his claim. You must surrender your will to him. You must place your trust in him. If this stands, that message is true. So the critics can't stand it. Well, how do they handle this? <clears throat> when I was in seminary, this was the book that I had for Old Testament. Understanding the Old Testament, Bernard Anderson. He's one of those critics. He says, The new understanding of Israel's special place in the world history was magnificently expressed during the exile by an unknown prophet whose writings are found in the latter part of the book of Isaiah, beginning with chapter 40. He says, Isaiah didn't write this. Some unknown prophet wrote this who wrote it after it had happened. During the period of the exile, when Israel's been destroyed, then he wrote it, just as they're getting ready to be released. So he moves it forward 150 years. He says, we know absolutely nothing about his life or the events of his personal career. For want of a better title, he is usually called Second Isaiah or Deutero-Isaiah because his writings are bound up in the scroll of Isaiah of Jerusalem. In spite of his anonymity, many acclaim him as one of the greatest, if not the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? The greatest prophet of the Old Testament, nobody knows anything about him. You know why? He never existed. There ain't no Deutero-Isaiah. He's Isaiah. Isaiah wrote it. But that's the way they handle it. No basis for that. No evidence of any such person ever living. But just can't abide this prediction. Now, you've got many scholars who answer that type thing. Classic is Oswald Alice, who was a professor at Princeton Seminary, back when Princeton Seminary was the greatest seminary in the world early in this century. Great faculty. Uh, but uh, the denomination it was part of went liberal. And here was this rock-solid seminary in the middle of that denomination. Now, you can't have that, can you? So they had to do something. They decided that they needed to reorganize the board of the seminary. <clears throat> and when that happened, the faculty left. Most of them, with J. Gresham Machen, founded Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Oswald Alice went. Oswald Alice... Uh, 
Instead, in Westminster is recognized, they read Christianity Today, they took a survey, it's recognized as the outstanding academic seminary in the world today, committed to the scriptures. And uh, uh, Oswald Alice, who was on the faculty until his death, points out the real issue is, is there any prediction at all, not just this prediction. This second part of Isaiah You've got many, many prophecies about Christ's coming 700 years later and about the details of his death, that he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb, he'd die with wicked men. Uh, many details about that, uh, that his death would be an atoning death, that after he died he would prolong his days. That's a prophecy of the resurrection. So you don't get around the problem by moving it forward 150 years. You have to move it forward 700 years. You have to move all the other prophets. You've got to have a... Deutero Zechariah and a Deutero Malachi and a Deutero everybody else. You don't solve the problem. This is part and parcel of the Bible, this kind of prediction. And uh, the message is, don't yield an inch. We don't need to yield. We don't need to give in to that kind of criticism. And our our Faith is based on the Bible. You give up the inspiration of the Bible, and you're on a a downhill slide, and you'll start accommodating yourself to every pressure point. If you give up the inspiration of the Bible, you say, well, we can give up. You don't have to hold to the plenary verbal inspiration that every word is inspired by God. We can can have a Deutero-Isaiah. No, no. No. You start giving it up, and then you'll yield at each pressure point. You'll yield at the pressure point of Christ being the only way. You'll yield at the pressure point of his death being an atoning death. You'll yield at the pressure point of of abortion being killing. You'll yield at the pressure point of homosexuality, whether or not it's sin to practice homosexuality. You'll yield at every pressure point that comes along once you give up the full inspiration of the Bible. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for Jesus to, for refuse to Jesus have fled? We don't yield an inch. We don't need to yield. The evidence is overwhelming as to the inspiration of Scripture. And Jesus Christ upheld the inspiration of Scripture. He says, you do err, not knowing the Scripture. Uh, he says, uh, the Scripture cannot be broken. Now, <clears throat> A case in point, this case right here. Notice we've had the prediction of Israel or Judah being wiped out and then is to be rebuilt. The person who's to do this in uh, verse 28 of chapter 44. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. Notice Cyrus is to be God's shepherd. Now Cyrus was the Persian king who conquered Babylon in 536 and sets them free and allows them to go back and rebuild the country and uh, the city and helps them rebuild uh, here the temple. Notice what's said of him. He'll be God's shepherd. doesn't mean that he would know God personally, be personally saved, but it means that he'd be an instrument in God's hand. And he would be the one that God used to conquer these other nations. Notice what he will do. It says uh, that uh, 
He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. He will release the captives. Look at chapter 45 and verse 13. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. He names the individual 150 years ahead and tells exactly what he's going to do. Now, uh, that's the statement about Cyrus. Notice the statement to Cyrus in verse 1 of chapter 45. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus. The word anointed in the Hebrew is Messiah. You have that word used for a number of prophets, a number of kings. Of course, it's used in prediction of Jesus Christ, who'd be the, God's anointed one, his Messiah, in a far deeper sense than any of the others. But he calls him his anointed. He says, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their honor. Uh, that's what, of their armor. That's what he would do. Uh, and uh, he says that uh, he would give him hidden treasures. He says uh, in verse 3, I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know I am the Lord. One of the kings that he conquered was Croesus. You've heard as rich as Croesus. Well, he had all these riches and they came to Cyrus when he conquered Croesus. The reasons for this relationship, God chooses him. Why? It says, for the sake of Cyrus's acknowledging the God of Israel. In verse 3, the second part, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. He does it. Uh, he summons him by name. How would you feel if somebody brought you a letter and it, it said, this was written by George Washington. And it had your name in it. And what you were going to do, where you were going to go to high school, where you were going to go to college, what profession you'd be in. You'd say, well, what George Washington was this? It's said, George Washington that founded the country. It was the first president, you say. He wrote about me? That's what happened to Cyrus. Somebody brought Cyrus this letter. And said, Cyrus, do you ever read Isaiah? No, let me read you. You're in there. This is Josephus. <clears throat> Josephus was a Jewish historian who lived at the time when the Roman army destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Here's what Josephus says about Cyrus. He says, <clears throat> he, he, God, stirred up the mind of Cyrus and made him write this. This is what Cyrus wrote throughout all Asia. Thus says Cyrus the king, since God Almighty has appointed me to be king of the habitable earth, I believe that he is that God which the nation of the Israelites worship. For indeed he foretold my name by the prophets, and that I should build him a house at Jerusalem in the country of Judea. Now that's what Cyrus wrote, but this is Josephus's comment on that. Josephus says, this was known to Cyrus by his reading the book which Isaiah left behind him of his prophecies. For this prophet said that God had spoken thus to him in a secret vision. My will is that Cyrus, whom I have appointed to be king over many and great nations, send back my people to their own land and build my temple. 
This was foretold by Isaiah 140 years before the temple was demolished. Accordingly, when Cyrus read this and admired the divine power, an earnest desire and ambition seized upon him to fulfill what was so written. That's very similar to what's said in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Now, for the sake of Israel, God did that, and they're being returned to their land. Uh, For the sake of the world's understanding that there's only one true God, God does this. In verse 5, I'm the Lord, there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. God wants everyone to understand that he is the only true God. Now, uh, look at verse 14. This is what the Lord says. The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush, that's Ethiopia, and those tall Sabaeans, they will come over to you, Israel, and will be yours. They will trudge behind you as servants, coming over to you in chains. They will bow down before you and plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you, and there is no other. There is no other God. Here are people from all over the world coming to them, other nations, and saying, coming in chains, conquered by them, and saying, yours is the true God. Now, when did that ever happen? It happened when you came to Jesus Christ. That's when it happened, when I came to Jesus Christ. Have you come to chains to the God of Israel? That's what that's prophesying, that Gentiles from all over the world would come and surrender, be conquered spiritually by the God of Scripture. Have you done? Have you come in chains to Him? Now, the the claim that is the corollary of such a demonstration. Look at verse seven of chapter forty-five. God says, "I form the light." and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. King James says, create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Here's a good God in control of evil, in control of everything. Now, what does this mean when he says, I form the light. He's talking about salvation, truth. Darkness would be evil, calamity, war. And God's not only the author of calamities in the sense of earthquakes and, and storms uh, or when a child is born with cerebral palsy. Remember what God told uh, Moses? He said, Who made the deaf or the dumb or the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? God controls everything. Not a sparrow falls without our Heavenly Father. The hairs of our head are all numbered. Now, uh, Cyrus is, he also controls calamities in the sense, calamities that fall through the agency of evil men. Such as Cyrus's conquering of all these other nations. God controlled that. God brought him on the scene. God used him. Now, Cyrus's purposes and goals and motives may have been very evil. He may have done this out of pride. He may have done it out of hate. God used him. God's not the author of evil. God doesn't cause men. He doesn't doesn't cause the evil. 
in people's hearts. But he uses evil men for his own good purposes. Just like when uh, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. And he winds up down in Egypt and then through his instrumentality, uh, a famine is averted. Later on, he tells his brothers, he said, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good to save many people alive. The evil men who crucified Christ, they meant it for evil. God meant it for good to save our souls. Uh, now, uh, notice the comprehensiveness of this. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Suppose your child was born with cerebral palsy. What are the implications of that? Ultimately, it's from God's hand. He allowed this to happen. He was in control of it. It didn't happen by accident. And he has a purpose in it. Now, he means it for my good. If I'm a Christian, all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. And I'm to trust him in this painful thing. Often when calamity comes to the Christian, God will, right in the middle of it, manifest himself in such a way that he demonstrates his love right in the middle of all the pain. Uh, And it's it's a way of saying, although I've let this happen to you, trust in me. I mean it for your good. A lady by the name of Florence Smith had a child born with cerebral palsy. She writes about this in uh, Christian magazine, uh, The Christian Life, May 1972. Her son also was deaf, six years old. And uh, one night, she and her son were at home alone. Her husband was away on a trip. It was an extremely hot night. They didn't have any air conditioning, and, and uh, there was not a breeze anywhere. Got all the windows open and all. And uh, she tries to put her son to bed early, and he won't go to sleep, and he just babbles, and he can't hear himself, and he's driving her nuts. Finally, she brings him into her room, and she's sitting on her bed reading her Bible, and he signed languages to her, and he says, what are you doing? She said, I'm reading my, my Bible. He said, what is the Bible? And she said, it's God's Word. And he says, well, who is God? Now, uh, she's wondered all along since this child was born if he'll ever come to faith in God, if he'll ever understand. And, and now, all of a sudden, this takes on a very serious note. And... Uh, so she signed, there was a picture of Jesus on the wall, and they had explained to him that, that uh, Jesus was God's son. <clears throat> and, and so she signs out that, that God is Jesus' father. And uh, he, the word father, he loved his father, and, and so he picked up on that word father, and he said, where is father? And she thought he meant his father. So she gets out a map, and she shows him where they are, she shows him Oklahoma City, and she says, Father's in Oklahoma City. And he says, God's in Oklahoma City? And uh, she says, uh, <clears throat> no. Uh, he said, well, where is God? Well, she said, yes, God's in Oklahoma City. Well, finally, she, she pulls the Venetian blind back, and she points up in the sky and says, God's up there. And he says, well, how can he be in... Oklahoma City and be up there and, and, and how can Jesus be here and and so she 
she flaps her arms and she says, God's flying around and Jesus is flying around. And uh, he got excited. He said, when's he going to fly to our house? And she said, well, he's here now. And he said, why can't I see him? Let me let me pick up with her words at this point. Uh, she said, uh, uh, I felt helpless. I had no simple answer. Help me, Lord. I said out loud, at that exact instant, out of the calm, still night came a great puff of wind. It was so violent, it, it drove the wood and metal Venetian blinds perpendicular. The bedroom door slammed shut with such force the vibration caused David to leap almost off the bed. I screamed and jumped in fright. We stared at each other in trembling surprise. David's eyes were wide, but not with fear. They sparkled with understanding. He lifted his hand as if in salute and simply signed, God. I, in profound gratitude, I thank God, for I realize God had given David the most dramatic answer he or I will probably ever experience. God was there. God was there, and God made himself known. God loved David. God loved Franz. And the fact that he was born with cerebral palsy was no accident. It was part of God's plan. And God was saying, look, I'm here. Trust me. Trust me. Uh, The calamities that happen to us, he's in charge. He forms the light. He creates darkness. He brings prosperity. He creates disaster. He does all those things. That's a verse to build your life on. Now, the consequences of this incomparable sovereignty of God. What are the implications of that? First, the folly of resisting God. Look at verse 9. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker. The folly of resisting God. Are you resisting God? We do that, you know. Is there some area of your life that you know that you're going against God's will and you're not dealing with it? Your thought life? Your family? Your parents? Your finances? Some area you know Something in your business that you know is wrong and you're not dealing with it? You're quarreling with your maker. Or if you've never surrendered your will to Jesus Christ as your master, never come in chains and said, I'll be your servant. You be my master. I understand you're God and you died for me. You're God the Son. And that you're my approach to Him and I trust you as my Savior. If you've never done that, you're in rebellion against the sovereign God who controls everything. What folly! What stupidity! The security of belonging to Him. Look at verse 17. It says, But Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgrace to ages everlasting. Israel, the true Israel, are all who believe in Jesus Christ. You're secure. Where are you looking for security? In money? It can go like that. In health? It can go like that. 
There's only one place of security in this world, and that's in the center of God's will, trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, walking with Him. Um, the invitation to come to Him, verse 22. He says, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. The invitation, turn to me and be saved. Young man, about 19 years old, in England, a couple hundred, well, about 150 years ago. Very bad wintry morning. Felt he ought to go to church. Hadn't been. Wasn't a Christian. Couldn't understand. Went by himself to a little church in his neighborhood. And pastor was sick and a layman got up and didn't really know what to say and read this verse. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And just kept reading it. But God used it to open that young man's eyes. That was Charles Spurgeon. One of the greatest preachers who ever lived. Maybe God's spoken to your heart today. The folly of rebelling against Him. If you've never surrendered to Him, do so. Let us unite our hearts in prayer. <clears throat> As our hearts are bowed... Uh, has some painful thing come into your life and you've been questioning God's love? Trust Him. He loves you and He's in charge. He has a purpose. Trust Him. There's some area of your life, even though you're a Christian, some area that you're rebelling against Him, haven't surrendered, resisting Him. Yield it. If you've never really come to Christ initially and surrendered to Him, push your trust in Him. Do that right now. Pray in your heart like this. Lord Jesus, no longer will I rebel against you. Thank you for your offer of forgiveness. I look unto you now for salvation. Come into my life. Amen.